You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. measures are based on fear. Good afternoon. It is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. And Psychedelia is broadcast out of the 3CR studios located here in Fitzroy in Melbourne, Australia. Um, still in lockdown at the moment. Uh, another couple of weeks uh, for us and then hopefully back to whatever COVID normal looks like. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species as well, the program just before us on 3CR, uh, who talk all things uh, animal rights related. So that's not just vegan issues, but it's also um, issues to do with um, things like uh, farming and how farming practices are working, how uh, land management practices interface with um, looking after our native species, for example. And I just saw this week, I, I, because we're pre-recording, I'm not sure if Freedom of Species have uh, covered this, but... Uh, New South Wales government looks like it's in a bit of strife over koalas um, and it might even break up uh, the coalition there from what I understand when I'm recording this, but we'll wait and see. I say that with some kind of glee, but I'm, it's a, yeah, um, following any other news at the moment other than what's happening in uh, with COVID uh, has been tricky, but that's also where you've got to be the most cautious because that's when sneaky things can happen. 3cr.org.au is the website where you can subscribe uh, to, um, to 3CR and you can help uh, become a financial contributor to what we do at 3CR. Uh, you can also connect with us and any of the programs uh, that are on 3CR by finding their program page. Um, and if you have some uh, rather than subscribe, perhaps you have a, an amount that you could donate. And I know that's asking a lot of people in these times, but maybe you are one of those people uh, who is able to and is able to help out uh, organisations like ours, 3cr.org.au. Uh, this week, uh, we had the release of the Global Drug Survey's COVID-19 report, um, which we are going to go into a little bit more detail uh, later with uh, Dr. Monica Barrett and Dr. Nicole Lee. Monica, um, who was involved with the Global, global Drug Drug survey and Nicole, who uh, is a specialist in treatment and especially in getting um, understanding what research is saying and then translating that into policy and practice. Uh, so we'll be speaking with them uh, a little bit later because we are a program dedicated to talking all things drugs, whether it's the policy, the science, the uh, how the alcohol and other drugs um, sectors work more broadly. And there has been a lot of interesting conversation in that area um, with a lot of uh, things moving online. So a lot of people attending webinars and discussions that they might not have in the past. And I suspect that's probably the same for a lot of areas. But um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next sort of six to 12 months, um, especially when Victoria uh, has its findings into the recent um, inquiry into uh, cannabis in Victoria. Uh, we're also uh, on YouTube. We've got a few um, segments that are on our YouTube channel. Just find that on uh, in Psychedelia. You can find it by just going to the 3CR website. That's the easiest place. One more time for those in the back, 3cr.org.au uh, and then follow the uh, uh, follow the buttons. Follow the buttons to our program page. Um, my name is Nick um, and on the uh, program this afternoon uh, uh, later on we're talking with um, Nicole and Monica but right now Jack Ravel from Drugs Wrap, uh, drugswrap.substack.com is the newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter looking into uh, what's been going on in the drug news from Australia and around the world. Drug uh, Jack, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good, Nick. Thanks for thanks for asking. So again, drugswrap.substack.com. Let's get stuck into it, Jack. Uh, from the age mole in the legal system, jail for counsellor who swapped clean samples for drugs. So a former drug counsellor has been jailed for more than a decade for undermining Victoria's legal system. This guy, Anthony Dini, um, he has appeared 
frequently in Melbourne courts giving evidence in defence of drug users um, as part of his role as a coordinator of the St Paul's Rehabilitation Service charity. Um, he was thought to be, you know, a pretty beneficial, good guy. But over the last um, few months, he's been facing trial for using his position to blackmail at least six clients into providing him with drugs and cash, which he would then provide clean urine samples that allowed them to stay out of custody on bail. So I think it's another kind of example of the sort of precarious positions that people are put into when they treat drug issues like um, criminal issues and not mental health issues. And yeah, it's it's just kind of an example of, of the situation that we've got going on at the minute. Uh, heading across to the US, this is from the uh, York University. Oh no, US, Canada. .ca has got to be Canada. Uh, York University study on microdosing psychedelics finds benefits outweigh challenges. Um, tell us about this study. So this is an interesting one. It's, although you said Canada, it's from, it's like a joint funded international study that's got a lot of universities across the world involved in it. Um, it's led by a guy called Rotem Petranka, who is the lead researcher, and it's been uh, the recipient of some Australian government funding. And it's a study into the benefits of microdosing LSD. So I thought that that was quite interesting. The Australian government have, whether you know knowingly or unknowingly, put money into, into studying this stuff. Um, RMIT in Melbourne and the University of Queensland have been involved. Essentially, the research, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, has shown that there are essentially no negatives to microdosing LSD and that many, many cognitive benefits were found um, in this research. So kind of an interesting story there. And I'm just noticing that the um, researchers used some of the results from previous global drug surveys. Um, so again, the global drug survey coming up a bit later in the program uh, from the latch.com.au CBD products could soon be available to purchase over the counter in Australia. Right. The Therapeutic Goods Administration have made an interim decision to reschedule CBD products from Schedule 4 to Schedule 3. Uh, this would mean that they'd be able to be purchased just over the counter without a prescription. Um, this is an interim decision, so it's something that they... Um, publicize a few months before they're going to make their final decision. It doesn't mean that that's definitely what's going to happen, but it usually means that's the way that they're thinking. So in the next few months, we could see CBD rescheduled down to Schedule 3, which would make it much more widely available to people. Yeah, I think um, Schedule 3 means that you can go into a pharmacy and this is sort of the behind-the-counter type medicines, while Schedule 4 would be a prescription-only if I'm, if I'm remembering my schedules correctly, um, which is far much more that puts it more at a um, in a place like uh, pseudoephedrine for uh, your cold and flu, um, which has uh, some small um, potential for abuse, but it is a really useful medication for anybody who's had a flu and wants to actually be able to work that day and not be lying down in their bed. My gosh, the pseudoephedrine works far better in my mind, in my opinion, than any of the other ones. Uh, heading to bbc.com, uh, surprise and disappointment at UK drug response. Yes. So the Scottish Affairs Committee published a report last year, which was based on one of the most extensive drug inquiries in Scotland ever conducted. Um, the Scottish Affairs Committee came out and said that they would want a radical rethink of drug policy in the country. I mean, Scotland, as pretty much everyone knows, it has a very high proportion of drug overdose deaths um, related to particularly opium and opioid deaths. Um, the recommendations basically said they want to decriminalise drugs for personal use, they want to support safe consumption rooms, they want to declare a public health emergency for for this issue. Um, however, this week, last week, the UK government rejected almost all of these recommendations and the week uh, previously, there was a guy called Peter Krikant, um, and he set up a safe injection room for users in Glasgow. And this is just off his own back. He's created this little van and he's got Naxalone in there and he's allowing people to inject safely in his van. The police have said this is entirely illegal. We're going to you know, shut him down if, if we if we uh, catch him doing this. Um, the Home Office stated that no illegal drug taking can be assumed to be safe and that there's no safe way to take drugs. 
they want to basically just reinforce their position on preventing drug use in communities by tackling drug dealers, um, you know, through criminal means. It's pretty much a whole wholesale rejection of the Scottish um, health authorities there and not really a very sort of enlightened thinking going on. No, um, and maybe it's just a good uh, time to quickly plug hrvic.org.au, which are running the Loxone training and safe injecting training here in Victoria um, and have been getting people from all across regional and rural Victoria um, who might not have previously accessed that training and, and getting that going. So a bit of a juxtaposition um, in approaches there, especially with um, uh, safe injecting uh, being being one of the sort of core harm reduction uh, policies that has helped to uh, reduce uh, prevent preventable death and uh, preventable disease as well um, across the world. And, yeah, that's disappointing. And I, I wonder if you, uh, Scotland are also kicking themselves a little bit considering that referendum not too long ago. Um, Marijuanamoment.net. Biden pledges to force people who use drugs to enrol in mandatory treatment programs. Sigh. Right. So in a recent speech, Joe Biden, Democratic presidential nominee, that guy, he reaffirmed his position that people convicted of low level drug offenses should be forced into rehabilitation if they want to stay out of prison. Now, this is a policy that Biden, as a pretty centrist guy, might think of as progressive, but a lot of drug reform advocates have come out and criticized his approach as mandatory treatment kind of reinforces misconceptions about substance use and the efficacy of forced rehabilitation programs is pretty questionable. Um, he said that anybody who gets convicted of a drug crime, not one that is in terms of massive selling, but consumption, they shouldn't go to prison. They should go to mandatory rehabilitation. Mm. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Uh, rnz.co.nz cannabis reports suggest legalization could create $1.4 billion in public money and 5,000 jobs. Right. So the Ministry of Justice in New Zealand commissioned two reports from this consulting uh, agency, which was going to help them draft the development of this cannabis legalization and control bill, which is the bill that's being put to referendum uh, on October 17th when they've got the New Zealand election. Um, and this report has come out and said that they expect the bill and the legalization of the sale and production of cannabis would create more than $1.4 billion New Zealand dollars in in public money for for the country. Um, they also expect that it would create up to five thousand jobs. And a figure that I'm not too sure why they chose this one, but they said it would see as many as four hundred and nineteen cannabis stores open. Uh, that could be leftover actually from the um, the fact that New Zealand still has a psychoactive substances regulatory authority as part of its um, uh, Ministry of Health uh, from a 2013 law that um, legalised and then six months later banned psychoactive substances. New Zealand being sort of the strange home of the psychoactive substances or novel psychoactive substances industry. So they, they had started almost working on a regulatory framework for stores to be able to um, sell psychoactive substances and there were stores already doing that pre-regulation um, and I suspect that some of those same players are, are probably still there so they've probably got a better idea of it than um, than other parts of the world might. I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. bit speculative on my part but um, I, I was over in New Zealand for a, for a conference um, a few years ago when this was all happening and went into stores uh, kind of similar to uh, a head store that you might find in uh, like uh, off your tree or Happy Herbs or something like that um, in Australian capital cities, uh, but also selling psychoactive substances. Um, so that's really interesting. And that, that referendum uh, is on the 17th of October? Yeah, 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 that's correct. Next month, almost one month. Getting close. Um, over to investingnews.com. Co uh, Compass Pathways IPO sets up next stage for psychedelics. So the psychedelics research organization, Compass Pathways, they're huge in, in this space. Um, they've had investment from guys like Peter Thiel. It's been a really big company that's been doing a lot of things in that space for a long time. And I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it. They have filed paperwork for an initial public offering on the American stock exchange, NASDAQ. So this 
is something that they've been rumored to or been expected to do for a while. Um, a lot of people who are investing in the psychedelic space are really keen to, to get in on this on this one when it opens. Um, it's it's something that's going to be seen as kind of a legitimization of psychedelic research because it's the first psychedelic um, company that's going to be listed on, on a stock market for private ownership and shareholders. Um, I mean, there are concerns with this that, you know, there may not be so much regulatory oversight if we allow psychedelic medicinal companies to be put in the hands of private shareholders. Um, and, you know, the profit motives there as well are kind of a little bit worrying um, as, you know, the need to make these medicines as freely accessible as possible is is kind of the most urgent thing. Yeah, it's certainly a... Um it's 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 that it's a really interesting discussion and i highly recommend for anybody that's really interested in these sorts of discussions to not only um follow the news and uh also uh subscribe to Jack's weekly newsletter, drugswrap.substack.com, but also find your local psychedelic organisations. The Australian Psychedelic Society has chapters um, across Australia, Mind Medicine Australia, who are looking to, they have the uh, the, um, the TGA uh, request review there as well. Um, They're also in cities across Australia, Entheogenesis Australis, who have had um, a two-decade-long interest in this, and PRISM as well, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, uh, PRISM, P-R-I-S-M, um, because uh, for the past decade uh, they have been advocating for psychedelic research, including uh, helping to get that St. Vincent's trial uh, into uh, psychedelic psychotherapy um, relating to uh, people's anxiety uh, the with terminal illness uh, and that's happening at St Vincent's in Melbourne uh, at the moment um, so follow all of those places uh, Jack Ravel is the editor of uh, Drugs Wrap and has uh, joined us today Jack thank you very much thanks very much Nick see you next T- week tell me about all your exciting plans what what do you do in a city that's not lock- locked down <laughs> <laughs> Every week, you're just asking for so, stories of freedom. Um, you know, this week, I mean, I oh, don't really want to tell you too much. I have a friend's birthday <laughs> next week, which uh, this weekend, which is going to be fun. Um, you know, just being able to leave the house, I think, would be uh, quite exciting for someone down in Melbourne. But uh, little, yeah. little vicarious on my behalf. Um, I know some people don't like hearing it. I'm, I'm maybe trying to vicariously live a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds lovely, and then I'm thinking of my own plans like um i know a lot of people have been going camping and i'm like yeah really i'm 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 mentally planning my next camping trip <laughs> because yeah yeah i'm thinking about it a lot um thanks jack enjoy your week and um we'll enjoy another week in lockdown but it's getting it feels like it's getting shorter <laughs> yeah yeah all the best and uh hope it hope it all comes to a conclusion soon isolated quarantined Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. 3CR, here to stay. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, 
spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people. And so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Ed Zycadelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au is where it's streamed. And uh, we also have some content on our YouTube channel. Just look up in Psychedelia there. Uh, on the program today, we have uh, Dr. Monica Barrett, social scientist focusing on alcohol and other drug policy, especially around how drug markets work in an online environment. Um, Monica works with the Drug, Mod- uh, drug Policy Modelling Program, DPMP, part of Australia's National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales um, and is also currently a Senior Research Fellow with uh, RMIT University. Uh, and we've also got Dr Nicole Lee. Uh, Nicole is a psychologist with expertise in alcohol and other drug policy and practice, um, is an adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, uh, a member of the Australian National Advisory Council on Alcohol and Other Drugs, and the director of 360 Edge, a specialist alcohol and other drug uh, consultancy, which helps people bring uh, evidence and research into policy and practice. Uh, Welcome, Monica and Nicole. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having us. Um, So the Global Drug Survey, uh, globaldrugsurvey.com, if you want to go and have a look and have a read along. Uh, It's an independent research organisation from London. um, And I think for the past five years, five years, Monica? Longer than that. We've been doing this annual survey. (laughs) Yeah. Started in 2011. 2011. Okay. It feels like it's 2015. Before before that, it was the MixMag survey for many, many years. Uh, anyway, so they've yeah. been running that each year and it was the global drug survey now, um, collecting results from people across the world. Nearly a million people have participated in the global drug survey over this time uh, and 60 academic papers have been uh, released as part of the global drug survey um, between May and June this year. Uh, there was a special COVID-19 edition that was conducted. We're going to be talking a little bit about that today. Uh, Monica, um, before we get stuck into it, can you talk us uh, talk to us a little bit about the participation levels uh, in the Global Drug Survey? Because it's sort of an important place to start, I think, to get context on what these numbers actually mean. Sure. So firstly, it's a, it's a self-selected survey. So it's not necessarily representative of uh, people in particular countries. And depending on how we recruit in different countries, we do get different kinds of samples. In terms of the COVID-19 special edition, that was not our normal annual survey. We kind of got together in April and decided we were going to put something together, put it out in uh, for seven weeks in May to June. Uh, and we had over 55,000 valid responses uh, across 11 countries. That There was a whole heap more people from different countries. Uh, I think it was about 150 different countries in all. But in order to actually report on countries, it only, only included those we had a decent number on. So Australia was one of those countries. Uh, and um, we had nearly 2,000 participants here. And they were mainly young people. So uh, 50% were age 25 and younger. We also include 16-year-olds. So we've got, we've got that, that element there. Uh, And we looked at changes in alcohol, cannabis, MDMA and many other drugs, over 20 different drug types, Uh, changes asking people to say, well, um, think about February before COVID-19 and tell us whether you feel that your use of these substances has stayed the same, has increased, decreased, etc. So... um, got that kind of information. There's also information we asked about drug markets, whether or not people had experienced uh, uh, reduced availability. We also asked people uh, about the different kinds of um, reasons why they increased and decreased uh, different drugs. Uh, We also looked at their last purchase of drugs. So there's a few different components to it. 
And what were some of the key elements? Were there things that were universal across different age groups and countries? Or was it really different in each country? Yeah, look, there were, there did seem to be some things that I noted across many of the countries. Uh, certainly the increased cannabis use was seemed to be pretty universal. This is amongst people that already used that drug. Uh, certainly um, that was quite universal. And also the reductions in MDMA and cocaine and amphetamines and, and ketamine, that these are all fairly universal. The, the extent of them was a bit different. The other thing to note also was that we asked about prescription benzodiazepines and prescription opioids as well. And I don't know if it was that universal, but certainly in Australia, uh, that was the second most likely, uh, prescription benzos that is, second most likely drug for people to say they had increased uh, during the COVID pandemic. So, so cannabis then benzos. And um, you said that people noted their reasons, I think? Yeah, that's right. So, um, for example, most people who said they had decreased both alcohol and a, a list of other drugs, the most common reasons were because they could no longer access the settings that they usually use that substance in and that they could no longer access the people they normally use that with they also said, well, I don't like using that drug at home. That was maybe not so much alcohol, but when it came to MDMA, cocaine and other drugs they were used to using out, they said, I don't really like to use it at home. And also things like, I don't feel like using that drug in a pandemic. So so my sense was that for, for, for certainly a, a fair few people, they saw these drugs as celebratory, things they did during fun times, leisure times. And this this wasn't that. This was much more serious time and it, it just didn't seem like the right time and place. But it did seem like the right time and place for cannabis and, and alcohol for many people too. So we also had a group of people who decreased their drinking. Uh, and especially in Australia, we had that group. Uh, and they were also, you know, saying that they couldn't access the settings where they'd normally drink. Um, the other thing that we looked at was we looked at um, decreases and increases in particular substances by whether people reported a mental health diagnosis, a lifetime mental health diagnosis. So this could be depression, anxiety, and we had a long list of those diagnoses. And there wasn't a lot of difference. There was a little bit more of the people with the mental health diagnoses said they would increase uh, their drug use or their alcohol use. But what was really different was the reasons for increase. That was where you saw the difference. So we asked people if you did increase the substance use, was it because you were feeling more depressed? Was it because you were feeling more anxious? Was it because you were feeling more lonely? And those reasons were more likely to be chosen by people who had pre-existing mental health conditions. So it certainly indicates that for some people that are increasing, you know, that that is becoming a coping thing for them. Uh, that's not necessarily so much the case with people that don't have underlying mental health issues. So it certainly goes to making sure those people get support, uh, especially as we move through this rather long period of social isolation for many people, distress, not knowing when it's going to end, all this stuff, um, you know, it really points to having a good, good access to treatment for those people, which I'm sure Nicole can talk to. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that we've seen among the uh, respondents to the Global Drug Survey a downtick in, in alcohol use because um, alcohol use overall across Australia um, is up 12.7%. Um, $540 million more was spent, and that was according to some GDP figures that were released uh, this week, uh, which is the highest figure on um, record. Look, that and, would make sense. And, and what we do know is that for people that drink really heavily, they're likely to take up most of the alcohol. So, so maybe the people that have responded here are people that, you know, had a binge drink every couple of fortnights, you know. For them, yes, they've decreased and maybe it's made a big difference, but they're not necessarily the daily heavy drinkers. Mm. So when it comes to looking at, say, um, alcohol across the board and how much has been bought and sold, they might not make much of a difference to that. Whereas people who are drinking daily and drinking a lot daily are going to make a massive difference. So sorts of figures. on that, Nicole, do you think um, that that's something that is likely to translate through to higher numbers of people seeking support for their alcohol use or is that something that's already been seen? 
Um, we, well, we have, don't have uh, very much data about who, like if there's increases in people coming for treatment. Um, and the, as Monica said, the overall um, data from other studies suggests that there's some people who have increased their drinking, but some people who've also decreased it. Um, but uh, one of the things that has happened in the treatment sector is, uh, especially early on, kind of adapted now, but um, early on, a lot of uh, treatment services had to uh, either close or reduce their services while they kind of adjusted to um, not being able to be in contact with people. Uh, so a lot of them um, now have adapted quite well and moved to online counselling, for example, which um, is going uh, remarkably well. Um, clients are reporting that they really like it. But the interesting, one of the interesting things is that um, the non-attendance rates um, for online counselling have decreased. So more people are actually attending their appointments than they were face-to-face. -face, is, is that... Is that compared to um, in-person appointments that they might have attended previously? That's um, just overall the services are reporting that the non-attendance rates have decreased. So we don't know who that is particularly and, mm. and why. But it does suggest that, um, you know, I think sometimes the, the community feels like people who have a problem with alcohol or drugs are just not motivated to change or they're not interested in changing and they kind of have to be forced into treatment. But it actually tells me that it's probably more about convenience and accessibility. If you, all you have to do is stay home and hop on the computer to, to mm. get access a counsellor rather than having to like take two buses to somewhere and, yeah. you know, take time out of your day. Um, it, it's much easier to to get treatment. And so I kind of hope that the online telehealth um, continues after this. I really hope it does too, Nicole. <laughs> Just provides options for people without yeah, all that it's, travel it's time. Clearly, yeah, clearly another option. And there's not much research in terms of alcohol and drugs and telehealth yet. I'm sure, I'm sure there's people doing research now, but um, other research shows that online treatment, self-paced online treatment is nearly as good as seeing a psychologist face-to-face. -face. Um, so it really does open up a whole new area of um, access to treatment, especially for people who, you know, these people that we're talking about now who might have increased their drinking, who might already be relatively heavy drinkers, have some mental health problems, and have increased their drinking, but maybe are not dependent or maybe are not having significant problems, they tend not to come into treatments, alcohol and drug treatment services because they're viewed as being for very heavy drinkers and for people with lots of problems. So it also opens up, telehealth also opens up a, a whole um, new area for people like early intervention, I suppose we might call it, people who are starting to experience problems that might not think to come into treatment, they might be prepared to have this more light touch kind of treatment. And that sounds like I'm liking the sound of that picture, uh, but we know that there's also quite a lot of uh, sort of disruption going on uh, at the moment. And we already had an alcohol and other drug treatment sector that, um, uh, especially in the private sector, that doesn't um, uh, doesn't necessarily have in place the quality assurances that you might expect um, when you're paying that amount of money, which some of these places are very, very expensive. Is that something that we need to be on the lookout for people offering um, paid, possibly quite expensive and ineffective um, treatment services online? Uh, is there, is there any regulation yet? I suppose it's a new area. Um, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The drug and alcohol sector itself isn't um, very regulated. The private sector, you, anybody could just set up a, private rehab or a private counselling service without um, any qualifications or experience to, to do that. And there are some people who are doing that. Um, but the publicly funded services do have accreditation standards. They've got minimum requirements for the people that work there. So they would kind of be um, the first thing I would think of. And the other, the other place, if you prefer 
um, to go into the private sector would be people who are um, registered as psychologists or mental health social workers or um, medical practitioners or private hospitals um, because they all have very um, strict uh, accreditation and, and standards associated with them. Um, Monica, uh, in terms of supply and demand, uh, one of the other things that COVID has affected is uh, borders, border controls. Um, I saw a particularly funny, uh, funny. I don't know if he, int- I think he did intend it, but it was a Victorian uh, police officer who was talking about um, what you're not allowed to do. Uh, and he said specifically, you're not allowed to go out and um, fill your your boot with uh, weapons on, and drugs. Um, and, you know, that's not. That's one of the things you're not allowed to do. So apparently, COVID specific. But um, uh, there have been a number of people who had been uh, caught out of their five kilometre areas, presumably doing the same kind of dealing they were probably doing before. Um, what sorts of changes in, in supply and demand uh, are we seeing? And, and yeah, uh, we'll start there. <laughs> well, look. I mean, you're right, and. There's, you know, I guess there's some thinking that has been done about how might a pandemic like this with this particular set of circumstances, you know, social and mobility restrictions across the world in this way, like we can look back to the Spanish flu 100 years ago, but then we didn't have these sorts of illegal drug markets back then. We can look to the GFC that's sort of 12 years ago to look for a a really big economic shock, but even that doesn't really cover it. So trying to understand how the different um, global shifts and flows of drugs would be affected by this is a really big question. Uh, And for Australia in particular, most of our drugs are, you know, coming through, you know, air. Um, they're coming through, you know, obviously the stuff that we grow here is different. So cannabis is a different case. But for much of the substances that are smuggled in by air and sea, uh, that's, you know, affected. We don't have the same legitimate stuff coming in that we can hide the, um, the the illegal stuff in as well. We don't have the people on aeroplanes who somehow manage to get past all the checks, which is essentially how some of this stuff moves around the country as well. So, yeah, you know, we saw a report last week um, about the methamphetamine market in Western Australia, and Western Australia is particularly isolated, and they found there, I'm um, doing interviews with people uh, in Perth, that they had had massive shocks, massive constrictions, so very high prices, difficult difficulty to find methamphetamine, and then some really dodgy stuff being sold as methamphetamine as a result of that. So in terms of the Global Drug Survey, we asked a general question about illicit drug markets in your country. So we wanted to capture people that Maybe they knew about a friend who tried it, they hadn't tried themselves. So it was a very general question. So as a result, it's really broad. And looking at that question, um, over half of our Australian sample said there had been reduced availability generally. Uh, About a third said there'd been increased price and about a fifth said there'd been uh, decreased purity. So these are all signs of a market constriction. Very few people said the opposite. So... um, in terms of there being any sense of market expansion. But we also asked people, did you purchase, so what was the last drug you purchased? And tell us about your last drug purchase. And if they hadn't purchased during COVID, why not? And these are people that had used drugs. So why hadn't they purchased during COVID? And I mean, we didn't have many people because we had the option there. I tried to, but I was unsuccessful. And not many people chose that. A lot of people said they were stockpiling, so they just didn't need to purchase, or they said that they'd reduced or stopped use and didn't have a need to purchase. But those who did purchase, I mean, we had like a few people, like 15% or so said it was a higher price. Uh, A few, you know, less than 10% all said things like, oh, it was harder to find, took me longer, you know, dealer took, took longer to come through, that sort of thing. Very few people said they had turned to different ways of sourcing drugs because we were thinking, well, some people might start using the dark net, but that was very low. Um, so that's something that, you know, might be different in different countries. So, yeah, I mean, over overall, I guess the thing to note is that of those people that were able to purchase between March and June, most of them said nothing had changed. You know, like I think it was like 50, over 50% said there was no change in the purchase. So, I mean, it's worth noting that for those people, probably more connected uh, people, 
uh, in terms of their networks, they were able to purchase and did purchase. And that does go to the fact that you know, somebody had to break curfew, somebody had to do something, or maybe they just met someone when they were shopping. Uh, they managed to do it somehow in any case. Nicole, one of your uh, nicknames is the Ice Queen for your depth <laughs> of knowledge on methamphetamine. Um, do you have any insight into whether these kinds of um, supply disruptions or maybe just life disruptions are impacting people seeking treatment for um, methamphetamine addiction? Yeah, just um, really anecdotal at this point. Um, really early on, there was some reports of um, uh, ice particularly that's imported and the precursor chemicals being less available. And so um, there was a concern among people who used it that there might be a shortage at, at some point, but there, that doesn't seem to have been the case. And um, I don't know, Monica, is there, Monica might know if there's um, potentially enough of a stockpile in Australia not to, you know, maybe we'll see that in a couple of months, there might be some flow on effects. Um, yeah, but otherwise, um, we haven't seen much change in um, the the type of people coming in for treatment either. Um, so it doesn't seem to have had a huge impact on the illicit market um, generally. I think one of the things that did happen uh, in Melbourne when we had that hard lockdown of the public housing towers, um, a lot of people were who were already on, say, opioid pharmacotherapies or mental health medication, um, their medication was brought in for them and they were all cool and dandy. But um, there were um, potentially some people uh, in, the, in that public housing who were um, still using, who weren't in treatment, who um, then had some difficulty accessing their drugs and started to go into withdrawal. Um, uh, but uh, luckily the government had um, a lot of medical uh, assistance available for people and some people were transferred to um, hospitals. So, uh, you know, overall it, it um, has had less of an impact, I think, um, than uh, we were expecting, at least what we can see um, from, from at, at the moment. We're yet to see what COVID normal will look like, so I suppose it's a watch this space type of deal. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Dr Nicole Lee uh, there and also Dr Monica Barrett uh, about the Global Drug Survey, about uh, the Global Drug Survey's uh, look into COVID-19, I should say, um, which you can find at globaldrugsurvey.com. Uh, also um, with Nicole Lee, who is a uh, expert in bringing uh, policy and evidence into uh, practice uh, at 360 edge uh, and you can find them both on Twitter. Uh, Monica is at Monica Barrett and Nicole Lee is at Dr. DR, I should say, Nicole Lee. Um, but we'll tweet that. You can find us on Twitter as well at Psychedelia. This is 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. None of us is chained. None of us are free. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. 
If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR and Psychedelia out of the studios of Fitzroy in Australia and also out of our bedrooms, lounge rooms, our studios um, that we've all set up as many uh, broadcasters of all stripes. I know the uh, commercial and even uh, television broadcasters have been making their own television studios as well in their homes. Uh, in Psychedelia, show about all things drugs. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Nicole Lee and Dr. Monica Barrett and Ash Blackwell with your question. One of the things that you that was asked about in the Global Drug Survey was policing. Um, and how people might have had different kinds of interactions with the police. What that what kind of correct. results did you turn up on that? There were just over a thousand people in the sample that were asked about the question, when did you last encounter police for any reason? And that was people that had used illegal drugs and cannabis, etc. in the last 12 months. So, and two thirds of them said not in 2020. So it's only a third that said they had. And then we asked them why, what, what was the purpose of this encounter? Uh, a, a quarter of them said it was COVID-related. 8% said it was drug-related. And then there's a massive amount, 63%, that say they don't like other. So we've obviously missed something there in terms of another good reason why people encountered police uh, and look that might just be you know they were around could be a whole bunch of stuff yeah yeah we did the, the question wasn't really very comprehensive it was really is it COVID is it drugs or is it other so in our case it was other quite a lot but then it was last time you encountered police what did they do um, and this was global. So yeah, we probably should have included things like roadside drug testing because we've got a 34% other in here too. So I think that's probably what happened, but given it was global, we didn't really think too hard about that one. But the most common thing, 35% was just to ask your name and ID. Um, we had things like, you know, stop you and check whether you had a legitimate reason to be out. That was 16% of the Australian sample. Um, for the more concerning aspects, 5% said it was har- they harassed you. Um, 1% said they, they beat or hurt them. So there's, you know, low numbers, but still there and still quite concerning. Uh, in terms of arrests and infringement, that was pretty uncommon, but we still had 7% saying that they were issued an infringement notice um, and 1% saying they were arrested. Uh, so this would have been, I guess, in the last, you know, three to four months from when they did the survey. So sort of like a, a three-month period, I guess, that we're looking across. We can certainly look more closely into that, and we haven't really done a lot of analysis about how that differs. I did have a look at some of the other countries, and, you know, people's policing responses in COVID have been really different. You know, I think I was looking at Ireland, and, and, and they, like, it was like, really high and it was all about I think borders because they, they were you know they had a really high number saying you know they're stopping you to determine whether you've got the right pass that kind of thing mm-hmm. so I think you know different countries are going to come up with different stuff here keep thinking I can hear rain in the background is that somebody's toilet <laughs> I think that's on your end I can't hear anything right no, all right, it's just me going mad. <laughs> Never mind. Um, uh, oh, I, sorry, I, I had something that's. No, I've got something. Yeah, yeah. Nicole, sorry, I, just, um, I just lost yeah. sound for a second. Oh, yep. Oh, that's that's right. okay. We, we were just fumbling for our next question, so that's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask Nicole if you had any insights into. I guess the health and, and well-being of the sector workforce. So people that you know working in the treatment sector, um, it, they're working in a much more challenging environment and dealing with a lot of the same stresses as other people. What, what kinds of things have you heard about how the workforce is going and what kind of support's available for them? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as you, as you know, um, the... The treatment sector, with well, the drug and alcohol sector more generally, but particularly the treatment sectors, 
very underfunded. So the people who work in it are already under the pump and quite stressed. And there's just been a recent um, workforce survey that has come out in the last um, month. And it showed that um, alcohol and drug workers, about 40% of alcohol and drug workers are paid less than the um, Australian average wage. So it's a, you know, they're already in kind of a stressful situation, low paid work, very um, complex work that they're doing, uh, lots of stigma from the community, um, a whole range of things that they're dealing with. And now on top of that, uh, they've had to adjust to telehealth. They've had to adjust to a whole range of new things because of COVID. So um, I think, you know, they're, they're absolute troopers and um, from what I hear, everyone's just kind of getting on with it. But the stress levels are reported to be um, higher as with, uh, as with the general community as well. So um, the several of the governments have kind of given out wellbeing grants and that kind of thing in because we need to keep our frontline workers you know they're the they're the ones that we need to keep um well and healthy um so there's you know there's some measures in place to assist but i think that um it, like it's really vital that our drug and alcohol workers are um feeling well and enthusiastic about their work because the work has become more difficult as well but there's still people who need them and need their support do you um do you think that when we do find COVID normal that we'll still see this um this sort of proliferation of um webinars and online sort of networking among the uh, alcohol and other drugs community and do you think that might we might see some innovation that, that hadn't happened before because people are connecting from areas that they might not have been in the past i really hope so i think this is a really um good kind of advanced for the sector to be able to offer telehealth and to be able to also access support um, themselves. Um, you know, often when, when health professionals reach out for help themselves, they don't necessarily want to get it from, you know, where they are because, you know, they might know, you know, they'll know, yeah, it's kind of awkward. They, they know people in the, in the health sector and they might not want to, you know, um, get support from them. And so it, it kind of does open up access to, I could talk to someone in WA that I don't know, or if I, particularly if I was in a regional area, you know, everyone knows everyone, um, but you can access professional development, you can access um, support for yourself, you can access supervision from someone um, far away. So actually just last week I did some supervision with um, a, a psychologist in Tasmania on Zoom um, because she'd had she'd had a couple of um, complex clients, uh, and that was really great to be able to do. I um, ha have heard from uh, through Harm Reduction Victoria that's doing uh, online naloxone uh, training and overdose um, prevention training uh, at the moment that they're seeing a lot more uh, regional and rural uh, Victorians um, joining and receiving that training who hadn't previously received it because mm. it's, again, it's you're not going to drive 400 kilometres to go to a one and a half hour training session, but you might turn on your computer right. and participate there um and if you want yeah. more information about that by the way hrvic.org.au um that's for anybody listening or, or watching along um yeah, it's, it's really fantastic the um the opportunities that you know that there's been a lot of stresses during covid but it has really opened up a lot of opportunities um uh, we've we do online training now we used to only do face-to-face -face and we've switched now to online and we have now people from all sorts of regional areas um, interstate coming to the training and the training is uh, sold out every every session which is um, yeah great great that people can access um, the sector can access more things all over the place I I'm definitely going to more webinars and things like that um, that I wouldn't normally be able to access uh, being and able to present to people like I was Ooh. on, I was presenting to people, you know, mainly awake in the US and Canada this morning at my 8am, their 6pm or 3pm, depending on which side. And that was excellent, you know, having that opportunity 
obviously the cost of getting anywhere if we were allowed to leave the country and come back, which is another question, but, you know, the mm -hmm. cost is so exorbitant and to just be able to do one seminar um, to do it, do it online is, um, yeah, I can see in the future, even if all of this is sorted out and we're, we're totally post COVID, you know, that a lot of this stuff, we're just going to say, well, why would we spend all that money and time and fossil fuels and all the rest of it when we can do this effectively in this way. And I don't think it can mm. replace everything. You know, there's definitely, yeah, you know, we all need a hug now and again, you know, a real one. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we are doing, knowledge exchange, um, connection can be, can be done this way really effectively. Yeah, I hope we see complementary models where we have both in-person and live-streamed uh, mm. things in the future. Um, something I think you it would be a real problem to stop either of them, and that's what we're hoping is that we'll get this into the future for sure. And, it, yeah, accessibility, I think, is, is a huge a huge one because it's not just those who live far away, but it's those who might have had other accessibility issues um, ranging from physical um, uh, disabilities to um, people that just might you know, be a bit anxious around crowds, but happy to turn a computer on without the video on, you know, and, and, and still maybe then ease into participation where otherwise they would have not engaged at all. Uh, was there anything that set Australia apart from other parts of the world um, in terms of uh, drug use, in terms of uh, how people were approaching it? And, and I think the Global Drug Survey, you're also looking at um, uh, relationships and, and mental health. Yeah, I mean... What we haven't done is we haven't analysed the data and controlled for things like differences in age, which I think is a major factor here because our sample is one of the youngest. Uh, so we've got samples, say, in New Zealand and Ireland where their median age is in the 40s. So it doesn't really work very well for us to say, let's look at Australia and compare it with Ireland and say something about Australia and Ireland because at the moment, you know, so we feel like, I feel like we need to sort of go back, um, do some fancy stats, uh, you know, control for a few variables that are different between the countries before we can really dig into that question. Uh, but in terms of the relationship stuff, we didn't look by country yet, again, at that, but we did look across the global sample. And look, a lot of people were reporting tensions in their relationships um, as compared to February. So increased tension uh, and, you know, that we asked about different behaviours, both receiving and um, perpetrating abuses. And, and, and there was a lot in there. It, it's really, I guess, tricky to analyse and had a lot of thinking about that since because, it, you know, we've got, you know, men and women both saying that they're being abused and that they're abusing and, and it's at similar rates. And it sort of seems a little bit, I feel like we need to pick it apart more uh, and perhaps mm. by collapsing all of the abuse behaviours together, which we can pick apart, but we've done that just to, to enable us to do this first analysis, we may be missing some important um, differences there. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you, when you first start to do these things and then you realise you might need to sort of just look more carefully at what's going on. Globaldrugsurvey.com uh, is the website and you can find both Monica and Nicole on Twitter if you happen to be a tweeterer. Uh, their handles are at Monica Barrett and at Dr. Nicole Lee. Uh, and um, you can find, well, there will be more information coming out of the Global Drug Survey over the coming weeks as more analysis happens and papers get written and whatnot. So I just wanted to say thank you now to um, both of you. Thanks so much.
Dr. Monica Barrett there, and we're also catching up with Dr. Nicole Lee. Uh, if you want more details about either of them, head to our program page at 3cr.org.au. Uh, thank you very much to Monica and Nicole for coming on the program. Jack for Drugs Wrap, that's drugswrap.substack.com. And Ash, always good to have uh, on here, who has been very busy with work um, in these strange circumstances, as I'm sure you're all uh, feeling into all the, uh, the the different ways that we've had to do things at the moment. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Queering the Air up next. Goodbye. This is Psychedelia. For more information, visit Encycledelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Encycledelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.